Welcome to Into the Fire, a Burning Coal Theater Company podcast series. Hi, this is Jerome Davis. I'm the Artistic Director of Burning Coal Theater Company, and I'd like to welcome everyone to Into the Fire, the Burning Coal Theater Company podcast series on all things theatrical. Today we have as our guest, Stephen M. Eckert, the director of two very special Carol Churchill plays that we are producing and billing under the broad heading Churchill's Shorts. The production runs at the Contemporary Art Museum in downtown Raleigh, June 20th through 30th. Performances are Thursdays through Saturdays at 7.30 and Sundays at 2 p.m. And uh, Stephen, welcome. Hi, Jerry. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Stephen, you were with us uh, four years ago, I believe, uh, as an intern here at uh, Burning Coal. Five, I think. Actually, five exactly five to the day. Exactly. To the <laughs> day, really. This was your first day starting? It or? was. It, it popped up on my, my Facebook today that exactly five <laughs> years ago I walked in the doors. <laughs> uh, one of the many reasons to hate Facebook. It's constantly <laughs> reminding you of your past. And I did that? Really? Uh, um, so, uh, so where did you come to us from? Oh, absolutely. Uh, before Burning Coal, I had been in New Orleans, uh, working in the theater, uh, the theater community there for about seven or so years. Is that where you did undergraduate work? I did. Uh, I went to Tulane University in New Orleans. Um, then after graduating, founded my own company, Promethean Theater. Uh, and from there, uh, came back to Raleigh, where I'd gone to high school. Um, to, to intern here. Where did you go to high school? Uh, at North Raleigh Christian Academy. Oh yeah, okay, very good. Did you know Burning Coal at all when you were in high school or did we pop up on your radar later in life? Um, popped on my, on my radar a little bit later in life, um, though I think I'd, I, I'd heard within the community. Yeah, yeah. okay, good. And so uh, Tulane uh, drew you down there and you stayed for, for quite a number of years and you created your own company. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like, getting right out of college, and, and or did you start the company while you were still in college? Uh, um, I started directing while I was in college, but I, after I graduated, I was very excited to, to be um, putting up work that, that kind of excited me and excited people I was working with at that time. Mm -hmm. um, I think as any 23-year-old uh, feels, um, uh, very ambitious, yeah, <laughs> probably yeah. uh, much too ambitious for their age, um, and I, I, I had a lot to say, and <laughs> I yeah. think that's why. And you said it. Uh, and, and what's that like? I mean, tell, tell me about that experience. That's not what I did. I did something different. I, I uh, went off to New York and uh, did the uh, auditioning route and, and that sort of thing, uh, but I didn't start my own company until a bit later. Uh, how, how did it happen for you? Uh, did you know the people that you were working with right off the bat? Were they all college friends? What was the process like uh, popping out of the womb of undergraduate <laughs> studies? Um, I think it's a great mix of both incredibly exciting um, and absolutely terrifying. Uh, uh, that was a mix of uh, people I went to school with, people who were still in school at that time, folks I'd met uh, acting in the New Orleans Shakespeare Festival um, and, other, and other acting uh, gigs I had gotten, just folks I wanted to work with and that yeah. kind of shared uh, a similar taste in work as me. Right. Had you seen uh, people's work in New Orleans that you were excited about and tried to rope them into your company? Oh, absolutely. Well? I think the New Orleans theater community to this day is a, is a very tight-knit, uh, smaller community, but with a lot of really exciting things happening. Uh, and that was definitely the case when I graduated as well. 
um, and I was seeing as much as I could and, and assisting as many people as I could to learn from. Sure. What was the, what's the infrastructure like down there for theater? Uh, are there theaters with buildings uh, or is, are, is most of the work itinerant work? Most of it is itinerant. Um, there's a lot of exciting things that are still happening there. Uh, Southern Rep, which is um, kind of the regional house, yeah. uh, one of the two Lort theaters in the city, uh, it has finally an, its own space again. Um, they just opened up a new location. It's really really beautiful from what I've seen. Um, and then the Tulane Shakespeare Festival and the Tulane Summer Lyric Festival kind of are two other equity houses that have their own spaces. But besides that, it's mostly a lot of um, people making work in found spaces or in smaller spaces, yeah. uh, which is both um, leads to a certain anxiety as someone who's made theater in that environment, but right. it's also really exciting to see. Uh, you see a good mix of different kinds of people coming to theater in addition to the, the kind of patrons we all very, uh, much expect to come to a, right. to a show. Um, so like when you're doing Three Penny Opera in a bar, uh, you get that bar's crowd, um, yeah. <laughs> as well as people worse. coming for Brecht. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, and Vile uh, as well. Um, <laughs> so what, uh, what uh, happened uh, over the course of that seven-year period? Uh, was it an upward growth? Was it stop and start? Um, uh, did the relationships bond closer together or fray apart? I'm just, I want to hear a little bit more about what it's like to, to do that at that age. Absolutely. I would say um, I've learned most things in my life through trial and error, from, yeah. from jumping in feet first and figuring it out. Uh, and I think that that's definitely the case with producing and directing. Um, there were shows that we did that uh, <laughs> that maybe had a max of 20 people in the house, mm -hmm. and those were rough. Um, I, the work was great, and I'm really proud of it, but figuring out those skills to make it work. Um, there were shows that we had to bring back because they were so popular. Um, so highs and lows. Yeah. Uh, the best thought, part about it, though, was um, working with some of the same people again and again. Um, I, I often kvetch that I have trust issues as a director and definitely as a producer, yeah. where oh, I love working with this person. Of course, I'm going to work with them again as opposed to kind of widening a net. Something I've gotten better at doing is, yeah. uh, is looking beyond um, uh, my kind of stable of performers and, and, and uh, designers. But um, I would say that as far as my relationships with those people definitely got stronger. Mm -hmm. My relationship with the community in general uh, got stronger. I think that there's something really exciting about the New Orleans theater community is that it's very, very tight. Um, and then in the best case scenario, that means that everyone's kind of got your back. Um, mm -hmm. The last show that I did in New Orleans was Annie Baker's The Flick uh, a few yeah. years ago, which is yeah. a beautiful show, um, but requires some very specific needs, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, including creating a realistic uh, movie theater mm -hmm. um, auditorium, which includes several movie theater seats. Um, sourcing those was going to be this impossible task until mm -hmm. we got word that uh, a theater in town was giving away their seats, <laughs> was, was, uh, was gonna put them in storage. Um, and I was able to, I got, I got the word up from, um, the word up, I got heads up from someone in one theater company mm -hmm. uh, and to put me in touch with them and we were able to, to borrow them right. cost free. Sure. So little things like that, I think in, in the best of times, that's what a small community like New Orleans really does well. Mm -hmm. And then the other side of that is in the worst of times, it can get uh, claustrophobic and competitive and uh, snipey and things like that. And yeah. that's, I think, 
very it's in a lot of communities too sure. i think but a small one it, it feels you really feel it <laughs> yeah we uh, we had a production of the flick here uh, uh, the uh, theater uh, is called the bartlett theater in durham they did uh, the flick uh, about 18 months ago i think uh, maybe less uh, chloe was in it who's in our She's production and uh, they did it in an actual uh, movie house, uh, a small movie house, and it worked really, really well. Mm -hmm. it, uh, it didn't uh, seem to require a lot of the other elements that we think of in theater, but you did need that movie theater. You yeah. to, to <laughs> really believe in that uh, space. Uh, so were you there? I'm just curious. This is a little bit off point, but were you there during Katrina? Or I was not. I was part of the group um, in the wake of the storm. Uh, the uh, Tulane, as well as other institutions, um, within the city really pushed to bring in new people. And I was one of the, that kind of wave of scholarship money and things that went out um, to get new students in. Um, so I was part of that group. Um, I'm not a person that, that survived the storm. Uh -huh. could, you, could you see evidence of it uh, while you were there? Absolutely. Uh, there's, when I was there, um, and I think still to this day to a certain extent, there's a lot of rebuilding happening. And mm. not necessarily literally rebuilding. The, if you look, there are, are elements you'll see like, oh, that's where the water line was. Or um, this, this building is still uh, in a condemned state. But I think that the big things that still exist from the storm, um, from what I've seen, are uh, structural. Mm -hmm. um, there was a housing crisis before the storm, and it's only gotten worse since, sure. um, where public housing has been demolished and... Uh, a wave of outsiders from the city came in and bought up houses, fixed them up and flipped them. And then now there's a crisis of Airbnb spaces pushing out renters. Mm. Uh, so things like that, institutional things like that, yeah. um, are really the big thing that's, from what I've seen, is the fallout of the, of the storm to this day. I would imagine, imagine a certain level of um, uh, unease uh, would, would permeate a, a community like that. You know, it's... It's one thing, you know, we think about the devastation that comes from, for instance, a school shooting or a mall shooting or something like that where a number of people are, are affected by it. But imagine what it must be like to have had, seen your entire city mm -hmm. wiped out, you know, through a quote-unquote natural event uh, and, and know that any time you turn on the television, you may find out that there's another one coming your way. Uh, it must create a, a, a sense of unease uh, that um, that I would find uh, would make it harder for artists to work. I would think. Um, I I think that the a lot of the exciting work I've seen in New Orleans has taken um, the storm as a, a starting place, mm -hmm. uh, not only of uh, the great loss that and the, the fear um, that ha that happens in relation to that event. But also the the excitement of um, or the the optimism in rebuilding. Mm -hmm. um, there was a really lovely production of uh, the Tempest that I was I was privileged to be able to produce that my friend Rebecca Frank um, directed, and it was the uh, besides the Paul Chan Tempest, it was the first Tempest actually put up in the city since the storm, and that was on the ten year anniversary of it. Mm -hmm. um, and it was outside in <laughs> in July. Um, mm -hmm. But it was a really, in, in the Bywater, which is a um, rapidly, at that time, still to this day, I think, rapidly gentrifying neighborhood. Yeah. Um, and it became a really great piece about forgiveness and about welcoming outsiders and about um, having a shared experience. And uh, it really spoke to the challenges that happened in the wake of the storm, um, but lived in the present. And I think that that kind of work is, uh, that I've seen 
that's that's the work that I've seen that responds to the storm that excites me. There's a lot of work um, that isn't necessarily made for me, which I can totally appreciate, but I respond to less where it becomes very much uh, about the hurricane or about the devastation. And I, I understand the importance of that kind of work, but it's never been the kind that I've sought out. Sort of documentary uh, re, re Yeah, um, at, at best, I think it really, it really highlights uh, these stories and these experience. Uh, and at worst, it kind of fetishizes uh, the disaster. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's never been the work that I've seen from New Orleans artists that, that really appeals to me, but this work that's about community, about experience, um, is much more so. As an outsider then coming into that community, did you feel yourself pushed to make art about that event uh, or about the fallout from that event? Or did you f feel yourself uh, uh, more, more drawn to it without uh, outside influence uh, pushing you? Um, I would say that uh, making work about Katrina has never been something that I've even really thought about. It's not an experience that I lived through. Um, I and so I never really felt the need to do that. Mm. Um, so I really couldn't say. <laughs> so there weren't uh, there weren't arts councils wanting to fund these types of things, for instance, or or uh, big productions happening all um, around you. If there were, I, I don't think I ever really. I guess I, I didn't tap into it. Um, uh, I I made the work that that I was making um, and and made the case for it. When I when I was looking for that kind of money, and so then so seven years go by, and uh, and you uh, so you've you've done your undergraduate, you've uh, ran this company for a number of years, and then you moved to Raleigh to work with us for a year. Uh, mm -hmm. And what motivated that decision? You have family in this area. I do. My my dad still lives here. Mm -hmm. um, I I think that's certainly one element. I wanted to be closer to him for a little while. Uh, I I think also I reached a point at that uh, I'd reached a. A point in New Orleans where I felt I had achieved uh, a certain level um, that I was really proud of, but I I wanted to go outside of the city. Ultimately, uh, eventually to grad school, eventually to New York, um, and I wanted I needed a break. <laughs> uh -huh. The the city is a great place and it's full of incredible people, but it can also be a little suffocating, mm -hmm. um, like any small town. Uh, New Orleans is a really big, small town, mm -hmm. um, and I was looking for something else. Yeah. Um, yeah. And at that time, the the work that uh, Burning Coal sounded really exciting, and it still is really exciting. Yeah. I remember um, uh, in discussions about the the internship uh, you brought up at the Iron Curtain trilogy. I don't think it was named at that point, right. but the idea of taking these uh, these incredible shows by um, uh, by, by David Edgar and taking them to London. Um, and I was like, okay, yeah, I will definitely sign on to work in London. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so you did. Uh, and, uh, and at the end of your internship, you uh, landed a, a place at Carnegie Mellon. Is mm -hmm. that right? The, the, you were a John Wells fellow? There? Yeah, I was, I, was really, um, I was really honored to serve as a John Wells directing fellow um, at the Carnegie Mellon School of Drama. At that time, uh, run by Caden Manson, uh, who this year is moving to Sarah to head to head the program um, at Sarah Lawrence College. Um, really incredible experience. I think Carnegie Mellon is one of those institutions that's uh, pushing theater forward in a lot of ways, but also paying um, kind of uh, paying 
tribute to its past, like keeping a, a, a former tradition alive while also pushing it forward in a really exciting way. Mm -hmm. um, especially the, the directing program while I was there um, was a, uh, a very forward-looking performance-oriented program. So um, contemporary performance moving beyond dramatic theater within, embedded within a very traditional um, uh, uh, theater conservatory. What do you mean dramatic theater? Explain oh, absolutely. Um, the post-dramatic uh, <laughs> is a little bit complicated. Um, there's a lot of writing about it. I took, it took me a long time to really dive in. Um, but the idea of the dramatic theater being really based on the text, based on a, um, a more uh, looking a, a more structured idea of um, cause and effect and having a uh, kind of an Aristotelian view of, uh, of action wow. within a show. Yeah. The post-dramatic can um, uh, rebel against that a little bit. It's a little mm -hmm. bit more subversive. Um, uh, I like to think of it less as post meaning, uh, less post as after, but post as in response to, uh, in the crisis of. Um, we live in a very dramatic society. Uh, we, we make narrative um, for almost everything we do, uh, our lives, our politics, um, et cetera, et cetera. The things we buy all sports. are tied to, yeah, yeah. sports. All of, our, all of our things we do and appreciate in our life are tied to a story. Um, the post-dramatic fights that a little bit. It says, well, some things happen and we can, um, we can live in something that isn't a story, it's an experience. We can look at it and uh, think about it, but not necessarily understand it. Uh. Absolutely, and it, and it kind of, it, to me, it ties very much to the Brechtian tradition of alienation. Um, it's something that encourages criticality and thought um, as opposed to catharsis. Here's a, here's a hard question for you. <laughs> does, uh, does an audience want that? Um, do they want it? It yeah. depends on the audience. Uh, at, I think there's definitely an audience for the post-traumatic. Sure. Um, I, I think there's a lot of really exciting performance happening that people are really drawn to. But I would say that as far as alienation goes, uh, an audience, if it's doing its job, an audience shouldn't necessarily applaud it. <laughs> uh -huh. yeah. Um, yeah. It's, uh, it puts a spotlight back on them. It yeah. makes you think critically about your own life. Yeah. Um, all this to say, I have been I have been criticized as a director who hates his audience in the past, and I don't know if I would go that far. Um, <laughs> Stay but out of my theater! <laughs> I don't want your types around here. Uh, but I, I do I do enjoy um, you know poking my audience a little uh -huh. bit. Uh, I'm okay if they leave feeling a little bit uncomfortable. Um, we live in uncomfortable times, and I I feel like if I don't like the idea of making theater that. Um, makes it better, that makes it feel better. Mm -hmm. I, I would rather make theater that makes it, challenges you, challenges you to make it better. Yeah, yeah. Uh, action is uh, sought by the audience at the end of the, the day, and, and that is, has, has always been one of our uh, core beliefs, too, in, in our mission statement. There mm -hmm. is uh, literate, there is visceral, and then there is affecting, and the third idea there uh, amidst that um, kind of broad... Uh, uh, mission is the idea of, uh, of the audience getting up and uh, doing something at the end of the process, not just uh, just feeling it or experiencing it, but also acting upon it afterward. Um, Absolutely. There's a great Brecht quote that is, um, art is not a mirror held up to nature. It is a hammer with which to smash it. 
Yeah, yeah, or I've heard to forge it, uh, uh, but the same, same idea. Um, but so Stephen, uh, I, I'm full of hard questions for you today. I oh, hope no. Bear with me about this. <laughs> but uh, so, so when I hear Brecht's quote, the first question that comes to my mind is, um, who is Brecht to, to, to smash something or, to, or to, to mold something or to forge something? Who, who, why does he get to do that instead of me? Oh, certainly. I think especially because Brecht, um, the history of Brecht's theater is uh, very um, problematic. Uh, what we call the work created by Brecht was actually created by a lot of people that right. Brecht got to put his name to. So fundamentally, Brecht is not the perfect messenger for this. And don't get me wrong, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not picking on Brecht. I'm saying why Why does any artist get oh, to Oh, absolutely. That? Um, and I think that's a good question. I think it's something that's related to uh, uh, something that I ask myself whenever I'm developing a new project, um, whether that be um, the staging of a, a already extant play, an adaptation of a classical text, or the work on new work, is uh, why this, why now, yeah. and who is this for? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that that's fundamental to the work that, that theater artists do. Um, I think it's really important, and I think you can tell uh, the difference between um, companies that are asking themselves those questions when they're choosing seasons versus those that are going back to the, I know, I was always to taught the like, oh yeah, three for them and one for you. And I'm like, well, that, what? <laughs> um, sometimes uh, what the audience will, will come to and applaud isn't necessarily what they need. Yeah. Um, and I think that artists could benefit to feel themselves more as revolutionaries um, and their work having power. and. That also comes with it, the responsibility of selling it and getting people in seats because mm -hmm. we live within capitalism. But um, <laughs> uh, I think that it's much more gratifying, it's much more meaningful for me to, to do work that, that does that. Um, but it also comes with the responsibility to be right, doesn't it? Uh, you know, if Brecht is, is smashing something, then he's, he's remaking it by mm -hmm. definition. And so my question really is, who is Brecht or who is any artist to be the one to do that? Why does that artist get to be the one to remake society? Why shouldn't it be the person uh, selling, uh, you know, pumpkins out of the back of their pickup truck down the street? Absolutely, well, I guess that's where I, I start to diverge from Brecht because I, I think that Brecht is maybe at his weakest when he's on his uh, kind of socialist soapbox. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> I mean, I feel like even Brecht living in um, uh, East Berlin uh, could maybe see some of those problems. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that he's most effective when he's um, throwing a wrench in. I, I feel like the, the disruption to me is much more uh, uh, appealing um, as, as theater artists than the, the rebuilding. Um, that being said, there's plenty of incredible work happening right now that's, that's socially engaged uh, um, that is about building. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a lot of really, I'm getting on a weird, like, you know, divergent soapbox, no, but uh, there's a lot of really incredible writing happening right now about what is the place um, for uh, a socially engaged work um, in, uh, there's a big question right now happening um, with, uh, with, uh, among a bunch of people about uh, why should the arts be focusing on providing services that we should demand of um, our governments, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a good question that I don't. I know I'm not qualified to, Give to me answer. Give an example. Are you talking about something like childcare or something? About yes. Um, uh, and this is more in a performance circle than necessarily theatrical. Yeah. But uh, 
So there's work that, like socially engaged art that, um, or social practice, where uh, artists will go into communities and work with, for instance, a senior center, or work yeah. with, uh, with children, or work with whole uh, housing buildings, or something like that, uh, to, to make something together. Um, and there's critique from others that say that's not really art, it's community service, and it's good, and you're doing good work, but it's hard to define it as, uh, as a piece of art. Cornerstone was a, was a good uh, example of that for many years. I, I don't know what they're doing right now, but Bill Rausch's company out on the West Coast, you know Cornerstone's mm -hmm. yeah. work at all? Yeah, they would go into communities and, and do plays where the nine out of ten of the actors were people in the community, and so they were training artists and they were training audiences, but they were making sure that the play reflected that community's immediate interests and mm -hmm. you know what was on the mind of that community as opposed to bringing a um, bringing a story to the community that they thought the community needed to hear and so in some ways they were creating a, a social function for the community mm -hmm. and in some ways they were creating an educational function for the community to use to for the world uh, to, to to educate the world on their on their behalf uh, is that the kind of thing you're thinking about? Oh yeah, it's definitely within that discussion. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's something that's happening right now. Um, like Eleanor Bishop wrote her book, and Shannon Jackson responded with her book, and uh, <laughs> we're getting there. Yeah. Um, but I think there's a lot of really uh, good discussion around that. Um, I, I would say that it's it's something that um, theater companies and 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 performer uh, uh, and performing artists should be thinking about though yeah. is um, why this, why now, why me. Who am I making this for? Yeah. Um, as foundational. Yeah, you uh, you have dedicated your life to to working in the theater, uh, and you, so once you finished at Carnegie Mellon, you made the move to New York City, and you, that was how many years ago now? Uh, just a, uh, I guess about a year. A year now. <laughs> I graduated uh, from grad school in 2018. What do you do? How, what does it what does it physically look like? Uh, you pack up stuff. Uh, I rented a minivan, yeah, okay. <laughs> and I poured my life into it and drove from Pittsburgh. Um, I live with my sister. I'm very lucky to live with my, live with my sister, and she's been very supportive. Um, I live in Brooklyn. Uh, until very recently, I've been working at Trader Joe's. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Not to give a Trader Joe's plug. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's. Um, I know lots of folks. I'm lucky to know so many great uh, theater folks in the city um, from my time at Carnegie Mellon right. um, and my life is in a lot of ways developing work with them when I can uh, working to live beyond that um, and getting work when I can get it <laughs> yeah, the, the college circle uh, uh, is, is an uh, the, the positives of that are obvious mm -hmm. right but are there negatives are there does it hold you back uh, does it keep you away from reaching into the larger community and making new contacts, or is that something you concern yourself with? Um, I, I think it's actually, it opens that up in a lot of ways. I, I think that I, I'm not necessarily the best person at like that kind of quote unquote networking, yeah. um, but I think that being invited to uh, reading that my that a player, a friend of mine is having um, allows me to go to that event and meet more people. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's really the that's the the networking game. Yeah. Um, can't see it. I'm doing air quotes. Uh, but <laughs> no, we <laughs> um, could hear it though. It was very oh, yeah. clear. Yeah. Uh, but and I yeah. think that that there's actually a lot of uh, value in that. And I and I sure. think that my time in grad school 
taught me so much about theory and about practice, but I think, uh, and uh, in addition to really providing me with a really valuable network. I think that the one, blind, one of the blind spots it has though, which I think is slowly getting better in Carnegie Mellon as well as institutions around the country is the kind of folks that are within that network. Um, I think that things are changing for the better, but uh, folk, more folks who look less like me. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that working with diverse collaborators, uh, diverse in, in race, in, in age, in uh, sexual identity, um, in gender identity, in, in class, in wealth, in geography, all these yeah. uh, different people, um, the more I love working with people different than me. And I think that that's one of the things that, uh, that most networks can get better at. Is how do you, uh, <laughs> how, what do you do? I mean, if, if somebody said, take one action to, to help make that happen, what would that one action be? Um, institutions need to offer more money so that different kinds of people can come to them, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> which is easier said than done, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that that's the biggest single thing that, that could happen. And, and actively recruit those people is number two, is go out searching for, mm -hmm. for different kinds of people. And it's, it's, not, it's not like a nice gesture. It is the future. Mm -hmm. um, if institutions don't do that, they will ossify themselves <laughs> yeah. uh, into this thing that no one cares about. <laughs> I think it'll have a trickle-up theory, right? And because the people who are making the art at the highest levels, which are the most accessible levels, will inevitably be making art that is not responsive to the needs of the vast majority of the citizenry. And why would they be interested in that? Uh, and I think we see it a lot already. You know, a lot mm -hmm. of the work that ends up on Broadway or on the West End or really even in films and television now are, are just uh, um, monochromatic uh, in, in terms of their uh, worldview, I mm -hmm. think. Um, I, I see often where uh, major um, programs, you know, training programs are auditioning and they say, you know, uh, auditions in New York, Chicago, and LA, you know, like <laughs> we're covering all the bases. And, Absolutely. Uh, you do know there are millions of people out there who couldn't get to one of those cities if their life depended on it. You know, do you want to close the door on them or do you want to go to them, you know? And, and Carnegie Mellon or NYU or Yale has the resources to do that, but those people never are going to. So mm -hmm. if they want to get them, they're going to have to go out and, and find them. Um, and oftentimes those people have no idea what Carnegie Mellon or Yale or NYU is. Never, mm -hmm. you know, how could they? How could they know that? And so, um, so some kind of an educational system has to be put in place that will reach those people in a, in a meaningful way or build up the programs around them so that they don't have to go to one of those big cities in order to, you know, mm -hmm. for some people the family unit is a very, you know, is the critical part of their lives, the, the one safety net that they have in their lives and asking them to go off for four years to a city a thousand miles away is, is not feasible and, and I've heard the argument, I'm on my soapbox here, the thing you, you <laughs> least like about me, I'm sure, but uh, I've heard the argument over and over again, well, if they care enough about it, they'll do it. But that's easy to say from the standpoint of somebody who was born halfway around the track. Absolutely. Right. So, so uh, I'm with you on that, Stephen. What do you? What is your work about right now, and and has it changed over the years? Um, I would say, what isn't it about? Uh, I'm really <laughs> lucky to be working on at the moment so many different kinds of projects. Um, which, I but I I would say that the the core of all of them is kind of a focus on um, critique. I, I think critique is is central to 
uh, my work as well as my identity as queer. I think that um, challenging things, um, challenging institutions and assumptions that are often based in um, historic uh, injustices, right. and historic assumptions about sexuality or, or gender or race, um, uh, heteronormativity and 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 uh, white supremacy is kind of at the base of a lot of things and challenging those things at, at all kinds of levels and from all kinds of directions is really central to what I do. Yeah. Um, I would say also a, a focus on working with lots of different people. Um, I'm really excited the collaborators I've had in the past um, and I'm always looking, especially in working on new work, with, with people with different perspectives than me. Uh, those are the stories that are often very exciting to me. There's an element of novelty. It's, a different, it's different than my story, so it's new and exciting. Um, but there's also a, uh, it, it's just more interesting often. I feel like I've seen a lot of the same play. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and it's always in more, it's more interesting to me to work with someone who's making something different. So, when, so from when I think of new work, I think of a playwright, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with a satchel and a, a script, uh, you know, and a little more or less, yeah. Is, uh, <laughs> is the, but but if we're talking about new devised work or work that isn't specifically generated by a single worldview, a playwright, mm -hmm. uh, how do you connect to that? Uh, as an, I don't mean emotionally, but I mean physically. How do you? get involved in that kind of situation in Brooklyn? I would say broadly the um, all performance processes are different, um, whether that's a device process or a more um, artist-centered, artur-like, yeah. I have an idea, let's make it um, kind of center. Yeah. Uh, and so it's hard to answer that as just one way. Um, my work is still in many ways, uh, most of the work I do is still really working with playwrights or on plays uh -huh. um, or with opera or things like uh, that. Playwrights who've already finished a play and uh, uh, the script for a play? Not always. Um, right now I'm working with uh, two, three, four, four different playwrights uh, on different works that are very exciting, um, uh, ranging from an adaptation of Dracula uh, to a, a new absurdist play um, about uh, multi-level marketing schemes uh, to a, a piece um, that is a mashup of uh, YouTube makeup vlogging and alien abduction confession videos that's about trauma. Talk uh, about <laughs> stories we've heard before. <laughs> oh yeah, um, but I, I think that, uh, so they're all coming from different places. Some of those playwrights are like, I have this play that is totally a mess right now. It's totally like, it's a big piece of granite and I want to work with you to, to chisel something from it. And I have playwrights that are like, um, whether it's an idea I come to them with or an idea that they have and come to me with, but it's like, I have this like kernel of an idea for a play, uh, like just a premise. Do you want to work on it? Does it sound like something interesting? Both of those, like when we, it starts as a seed and we grow it from there. Mm -hmm. um, so all these processes are really different. I've, um, I was really lucky to work with uh, Kate and Manson's group, um, big art group. Um, on a piece that they created, a performance piece uh, um, for the Bard Biennial last year that uh, had a completely different way of working. Uh, he came with like him and, and uh, like they came with an idea that was, okay, here is the, the um, not structure, but the, the uh, mechanics. This is the technology we want to use. Mm. Um, they, have a, they had a concept and they had technology. And it's like, let's see what we find when we play with this technology and what works. Um, so things like that. Uh, there's all kinds of ways to make work, and all of them are really valid. Um, part of me finds uh, 
diving into a new process really anxiety ridden but ultimately uh i get over that mm -hmm. and and we make great work speaking of which uh, talk to me about uh, carol churchill and about these two one x that you're directing for us uh, a number and far away absolutely uh i think carol churchill is one of um the one of the 21st century's uh great playwrights bar none um and the 20th for that matter yeah uh <laughs> she's still working though sure. um i i think her perspective is really exciting um and i think her work going back to it even going back to work that you, you see as her kind of big breakouts like top girls and things like that yeah. it still really holds up in a lot of ways uh and I, I think that's why top girls is getting a revival next year i think um but uh, it ages incredibly gracefully it ages so well that um there are moments in, for instance, Far Away, that was written in the year 2000 mm -hmm. um, that would become immediately more relevant after 9-11. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah um, absolutely. This beautiful play, a beautiful, terrifying play about fear and about the narratives that people tell themselves and each other uh, about her like, to make themselves out to be the hero um, in a conflict uh, are so relevant today. Yeah. And yeah. they were relevant when she wrote it and uh i think that churchill is a really brilliant person i think that her writing is so varied too yeah. even between these two plays there which were uh, direct follow-ups to each other like yeah. uh, far, a, a number was written immediately after um and she experiments with style uh and, and i think that that kind of creativity is really exciting i first got into churchill when i was in um, undergrad I was lucky enough to uh, work on a production of The Scriker, mm -hmm. which is another radically different play of hers and, and so massive um, and very exciting and so packed full of such smart language. Mm -hmm. um, and I think something that especially really sticks out in The Scriker um, and in her work like Top Girls and others um, and in Far Away, she has this unique perspective as a woman as well that mm -hmm. is so, it is both, um, incredibly inventive and and it can be incredibly cruel and hard-hitting but it has a core of empathy even at its most cold that really shines through it, it's just it's so intelligent and it's intelligent with like facts and logic and mm -hmm. and the references she's making and the work she's talking on but it's also emotionally intelligent and uh even when the the text she's giving you is sparse it has enough in there that you get a sense of character and you get a real sense of a lived-in body. <laughs> right. um, and I think that's very, it, it's to her credit, she's an incredible playwright. I agree, I agree. And you've uh, been working now for five weeks with us on this uh, um, set of plays over at the Contemporary Art Museum over at CAM. Can you, uh, maybe to wrap up today, just talk a little bit about what it's like to go into a space. I'm sure you've had lots of experience like this in your days in New Orleans, but to, to go into a venue that really isn't designed as a theater venue and, and to make it into one or try to? Absolutely. I, I think it's weird looking back on my, my the shows I've been lucky enough to direct. Very few of them have been presented in a proscenium traditional theater space. Mm -hmm. I think maybe maybe two. <laughs> um, and so I'm very used to working in black box spaces and in site specific. Uh, I think I much prefer that. I think especially in shows that I uh, like far away and a number, which are very intimate to me. I, I think that the opportunity for closeness to an audience, um, the opportunity to 
uh, disrupt an audience's expectations. I think when an audience comes into a traditional theater, they feel very comfortable. They have an understanding of what the experience will be. I will sit in my seat, I will see the action on stage, the most radical thing that can happen to me is someone bothers me walking down the aisle. Mm-hmm. Like it's, and that's, that's interesting. It's an interesting place to start that level of comfort. But I, I think letting an audience be unsure of their experience um, to me is much, is, is very preferable for the kind of work I do. Um, and I think in general, it's more exciting. <laughs> I know I, I would much prefer to, to walk into a space that I was unsure about. Um, Maybe not at the time, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So I'm, I I love working in Cam too. It's such a beautiful space. Yeah, it really is. Uh, it feels dynamic just from the moment you walk in the door. So it was designed for stories to be told uh, mm-hmm. in there for sure. And uh, whether those stories are visual art or music, as they've often done, I don't think they've done dance yet. Maybe because the floors are a little we, hard. We have been lucky enough to be sharing the space with um, a really talented breakdancing team. Oh, really? Uh, <laughs> they're in right before we start rehearsals. Wow. Um, and I, I've only really peaked, and I, they seem to be practicing, so I don't want to bother them, but yeah. they seem to be really talented, and their music is amazing. So nice. so they do a little dance. <laughs> Very good. Okay, well, they've got all the bases covered. Uh, uh, Far Away and A Number, directed by Stephen Eckert, will open at Burning Coal, but at the Contemporary Art Museum, 409 West Martin Street in downtown Raleigh, on Thursday, June 20th, and run for two weeks through Sunday, June 30th. Tickets are available at burningcoal.org or at 919-834-4001. Stephen, thank you very much for working with us on these two extraordinary plays and also for uh, that uh, year in which you basically gave us your <laughs> life for a year and uh, allowed us to work with you and uh, benefit from that. So thank you very oh much. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. I, uh, the first of many, I'm sure. Excellent, that's a good deal. <laughs> Take care. Thank you for listening. Our production of Churchill's Shorts, two short plays by Carol Churchill, will run from June 20th through June 30th at the Contemporary Art Museum in Raleigh. For tickets or for more information, visit us online at burningcoal.org or give us a call at 919-834-4001.